You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Oh, yes. <laughs> right there. Hey, how about that? That was really cool to hear about uh, our team going to the DR this Saturday. And Michaela, I'm grateful to be a part of a community that goes and sends. Let's continue on at our look in the book of Ephesians. We're going through this summer, and we're going to pick up more or less where we left off last week. Here we are today in chapter 4, verse 25. I'll be your scripture reader. It says this, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And that is the reading of God's word. All his people joyfully today said, amen, amen. Someone by the name of Dr. Martin E. Marty, or as his friends call him, Marty Marty. Not to be confused with Marty McFly or Marky Mark. Sorry for the Gen X deep dive there and callback. Jokes aren't getting any better today. All right. Uh, Martin Marty is actually an historian at the University of Chicago, and back in 2018, he came out with a fascinating article pointing out that we are a society in the middle of what he named, here's his term, cultural disintegration. Cultural disintegration, and he listed off, based on his research, four marks of what it means to exist in a culture that's struggling to stay together. He said you can know that a culture is struggling when it experiences these four things, four marks. He said, number one, there's what he calls indefinite anxiety. Indefinite anxiety is in worries, fear just spike and keep going up. Two, there's general uncertainty. Like there's no such thing as truth anymore, facts, right and wrong, they all go away. Three, third mark is loneliness. Because of, ironically, a focus on the individual, the more we focus on ourselves, the more lonely we tend to be. And four, feelings of meaninglessness. Now, a way of putting it all together would be, and I'm not a math major, so I'm pretty proud of what you're about to see next. A way of putting it all together would be this. I put it like in a math formula. Anxiety plus uncertainty times loneliness plus meaninglessness, and you'll notice, thankfully, all the parentheses are in the proper spots, math majors, equals cultural disintegration. As in, when you put all these things together, it feels like things are falling apart. And again, my high school algebra teacher would finally be proud of me for one thing. But Marty Marty was right, of course, but that was only 2018. And then came... Come on, 2020 and 2021 and 2022. And during that time, I lost count of the people who asked me stuff like this. What's it all for? 
Why do I feel so lost? And maybe some of you feel like that right now today. But then Dr. Martin noticed this. He noticed that in times, historically, of cultural disintegration, people always begin to search for two things. And these two things are the two things that money cannot buy and technology cannot produce in your life and atheism cannot create in a culture. What people always begin to look for, he noted, at the peak of cultural disintegration are two things, faith and community. Faith and community, religious symbols to believe in and a loving people to belong to. When things fall apart, he noted, people are more open than ever to God and communities of faith. What does that mean for us today? It means this. It means the greatest thing that our our nation needs, our culture needs, our city needs right now, I believe, is us. Is us, you and me and what we have here, the greatest gift we can give our culture in times of anxiety, falsehood, loneliness, and despair is exactly what Dr. Martin named and what the Apostle Paul lays out here, a particular kind of community. It's a particular kind of community we're going to look at. It's hard to build. It's easy to lose. It's a kind of community that we all long for ourselves, even while we might want to deny it for others. It's the kind of community that perhaps more than ever, hear me, testifies and bears witness to the power of the cross of Jesus and the hope of his gospel. The greatest gift based on this passage we can give our culture for the next 50 years plus is this, a community of kindness and compassion. A community of kindness and compassion. After all, Paul ends his whole section here about how to live as a Christian in a pagan culture. He ends it like this, verse 32. He said, be kind and compassionate to one another. And right about now, it's making sense why I have wore the t-shirt I have on today. Some of you said, maybe it means, said he king. No, not he king. Be kind That's a very different and not a message you're going to hear here. All right. So what is coming to a city near you? If the church of Jesus is there, it ought to be this. It ought to be a community of kindness and compassion. Four questions about that. First, why do we need this? Why might we need? Why do we need a community to belong to? and remain involved with the community of kindness and compassion. Let me give you one reason among many. Verse 29, Paul says this. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out your mouth. (laughs) Now right there, we're all done, right? We're all just on the floor. Unwholesome, this word in the Greek means rotten, putrid, like hot garbage gets rotten and putrid when you leave it out with the can open in the heat of the Texas summer sun. Paul says, your words can be like hot garbage. So watch your mouth. And in this one verse, Paul's giving you just one reason among many why we need our communities to be places of kindness and compassion because, here it is, at some point, and at some point in particular in a place like Mosaic, somebody's gonna forget Ephesians 4.29 and they're gonna say something to you that really, really stinks. <laughs> and in that moment, yes, joke intended, told you they weren't gonna get any better. When the hurt happens, what are we gonna do about it? Now, 
let you in my life a little bit. I am a part of a number of different circles uh, of pastors, both here in Austin, uh, around the world, certainly here in the U.S. I get on small groups and meet and talk and help and plan. Uh, I do stuff on Zoom regularly here with pastors inside and outside of our Every Nation family. But no matter who I talk to, it's been the same story over the last few years, which is this. Quite a number of churches in the U.S. have seen a mass exodus of people. And the fact that Mosaic, by contrast, has grown nearly 10% this calendar year is nothing short of miraculous. I'm just saying we are, by God's grace, and a whole lot of work from a lot of people with the exception and not the rule. But still, we have struggled here. You should know what Paul calls this. Bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Now, malice is just a word that means ill will. People have left churches. People have mosaic too. This is true across the board, hear me. Not, I discovered, thought about this, over theological issues. Not over a change in doctrinal stances. Not a change in a statement of faith or over a change in the belief of the Trinity, the authority of the scriptures, or the person of Christ. Not even over a scandal in their church. But people left simply over ill will. They left because, for example, the church was closed. Or they left because the church was open. Or maybe because the church was reopened. And people were told, and many believed, that this betrayed a certain partisan political position. They felt like their church betrayed them or their family or their nation or their God. In fact, that was the single word that national surveys and research has shown that people left over. Over again, people said they felt betrayed. Felt betrayed by their pastor or their church for taking a certain side or not taking a certain side. Over, we all know the list, COVID masks, vaccines, the election of candidate, Black Lives Matter, protest, the list goes on. I woke up Easter morning, 2021, to discover someone had sent out an email to as many people here in the church as this person could find, many of which were volunteers, team members at Mosaic, encouraging all of them to leave now because I had this person felt betrayed the church because they said I believed a particular, not theological, but political position. Now, I didn't actually believe what this person said. They never asked me. We never talked about it. They just believed something. They sent out the email, and it affected and hurt a lot of people. Now, I would call that, I could be forgiven for this, I'd call that some hot garbage. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I feel better. Two years in the, in the making. All right. And that's just one example of many. Now, I tell you that not to make you feel sorry for me. I'll tell you that to maybe help you pray for me. Uh, part of this just comes with the territory. I, I get it. But every pastor, my point is, I know faced the same thing. And maybe you did too. And I know, again, that's not nearly what people in global hot spots where real persecution happens. You know, Ukraine, uh, India, many places. No one's facing, uh, they're facing something worse there. I get that. But still, I'm asking, what do we do? With all of this, how are we going to process all the bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and malice we have faced and we just might face? How do we process sapros logos, unwholesome speech and ill will? What we need are communities of kindness and compassion because without them, people and relationships, a culture falls apart, and the loneliness, uncertainty, despair, and disintegration 
communities. Kindness and compassion keep us together. So first, number one, that's why we need them. But let's ask this next. Okay, so what are they not? I wanted to find it a bit in the negative here in reverse. This is important to see so we get this right, not wrong. What are communities of compassion and kindness not? I want to sort of define it negatively, then I'll reverse it. A community of compassion is not a number of things. Let me give you three marks Paul lists here. Communities of compassion and kindness are not, first of all, devoid of truth. Okay, this is important because when you hear the word compassion and kindness, you may think, oh, he's saying mosaic or anybody ought to be the kind of person or community that just accepts anything and nothing can be further from the truth. Because by the way, you don't (laughs) either. All through chapter four here in the context of compassionate community building, Paul talks about the importance of Truth, yes. All right, we're working together a bit here. Here's just one example. Verse 25, he says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Why? Well, because without truth and truth-telling, communities wither. Paul, you read it in the passage, has got a lot of true things to say about not living in sexual immorality, not living in greed. He's got lots of true things to say about rejecting the impurity is around us in culture. Because the truth is misusing your body, your money, your mind according to God's standards, not people's. That's going to hurt you and hurt others. That's the truth. And Paul lays it out super straight. Why? Again, because it's not a real community or a real family of compassion kindness unless real truth is present and this is a hard thing to do manage hang on to let me give you just one example what are the biggest challenges all for all you parents parents face especially with teenagers oh yes my world right now is knowing when to hold them and knowing when to fold them that was for you boomers okay we'll get to the millennials here in just a bit that is when do i confront the child. <laughs> when do I hold my tongue with the child? If you always confront, if you always only just let it rip, right? You being you, keeping it real. You'll do what Paul says you shouldn't do later on in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, you'll exasperate your children. Don't do that. But if you never confront, you never speak truth, the poor character, maybe even the evil and your child can't be driven out or at least blunted and muted. Listen, I can't tell you how many parents. Am I done already? All right, I'm just, I'm just kidding. All right, time, time's up. All right, how many parents I know who have undone their families by refusing to speak truth out of a false sense of kindness only to regret it later. So don't get it twisted. Communities of compassion are not absent of truth, they're marked by it. And the irony is, hear me, those who want, you want a community of total acceptance of every choice you make without truth-telling, what you're wanting is a God who will change everybody else but you, but you. You don't get it both ways. But that's not who we want to be here, of course. So communities of compassion are not, not devoid of truth. Second, they're also not weak. Look at this, verse 26. Paul says, in your anger, 
Do not sin. Follow me with this one. Paul talks a lot about your emotional life in this passage. He talks a lot about anger here, but there are two different words for anger he uses. This word for anger means literally like, like an emotional arousal, like you're all stirred up and you're emotionally worked up state, he said, don't do something you regret. Hmm? When you get worked up about it, don't just unleash every bit of it. This is in contrast, however, to the other word for anger in this passage where Paul says, get rid of that kind of anger, all of it. That word means an unrestrained temper. So he says an unrestrained temper hurts, but he's not saying anger in and of itself is wrong. Why? John Stott, the great pastor writer, put it like this, quote, he says, there's a great need in the contemporary world for more, he calls it, Christian anger. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant. We should be angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses his anger, it should arouse ours also. What that means is when you see something like what happened a few weeks ago, for example, in Atlanta, where a group of <coughs> people holding the Nazi flag came out to surround and intimidate a Jewish synagogue, you can and should be aroused to anger. Why? Because then we might act on it and move against the evil with strength. See, because we have compassion, we can be angry about and move strongly against Communities of kindness, first, not devoid of truth. Then second, they're not weak. And therefore, maybe most of all, they're not outdated. Not outdated. Because for some of you, when you heard this word kindness, you think, well, that was nice. Like 20 years ago, 40 years ago, back in the 80s, you know, or in the 60s, you know, peace and love, man. No, to get ahead today, we need something else, people say. You, you know, you got to play dirty in public. Tim Alberta, he is the son, both the son of a pastor, got my attention, son of a pastor and a writer for the Atlantic Magazine, and he covers the intersection of politics and faith. And, and back in March of this year, he interviewed a number of professing Christian people who acknowledged they were fed up with being nice and kind toward other people on the other side of the political aisle. One man he interviewed put it like this, leaders being nice. Where did that get us? Said Jerry Bird, a church-going attorney who'd driven from the Detroit suburbs to hear a particular candidate speak. One party, he said, is ruining this country and being a good Christian isn't going to stop them. Honestly, I don't want someone on decaf. We need the real thing. Now, what's the real thing? Apparently not someone who expresses the Christian virtue of kindness. That's for sure. Why? Because kindness is outdated. Hmm? It's for the past. It's for the weak, except for, oh, if you'll remember, compassion is the single most consistently described emotional descriptor of the one who came to save you and me. Jesus was so often described as being filled with compassion. And so I want to tell you something right here, right now. Please listen, if we as Christians, if we exchange our most cherished, precious historical values and we let go of the cruciality of the literal fruit of the Holy Spirit, 
for a one-time election win, we are now reduced to being hungry, desperate Esau's, selling our resurrected birthright to the political Jacobs of the moment. And when we go back to our father's tent looking for a blessing, we act shocked to find that it's gone. Oh, if we say we have to now exchange kindness and compassion for brutality because we perceive the other side has, we become condemned as Luthen on the Star Wars shore show Andor said, to only fighting with the tools of our enemy and therefore becoming indistinguishable from evil ourselves. That was the Gen Y-ish bit right there. Star Wars, Andor, okay, all right. Say more we can do better next time, okay. Listen, when we do, if we do this, if we forsake our kindness and compassion, Paul says, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. He said, don't do that. Don't do that. The Spirit of God is grieved when communities give up kindness, compassion. So they're not outdated. Matter of fact, they're needed more than ever, I'd argue. So if that's what they're not, let's flip it around and ask our third question. What are they? What is a community of kindness and compassion? Some by the name of Watchman Nee. You may have heard the name. He's a Chinese Christian, 20th century author, pastor, writer, thinker. He tells the true story about a brother of his in South China. Here it is. His brother had a rice field on the top of a hill and there were these staggered plots of farms and land up the hill and they're one above another. And of course, to grow rice, you have to keep your field wet. And in this particular place in time, this Chinese farmer and these farmers had to haul the water up from the bottom to the top and pump the water and haul the water. And although this particular farmer found that he, had, while he had pumped and hauled his water, he found that his field was still always dry and his rice wouldn't grow. But what he discovered was this. He discovered that his neighboring farmer just below him had knocked some holes, small holes, in the barriers between their fields and the fence between their fields, allowing the water from the upper field to drain down into the lower field. The man below was stealing the water and stealing his work, and he did this over and over again. And so Watchman Nee's brother, a Christian, began to ask his friends, what should I do about my neighbor?" Now, I don't know about you, but I thought about that question, and I had a short list of answers I came up with that I want to share with you. All right. First, I might have started just straight up walking down to that man's rice field and helping myself to his rice, because after all, it was my rice, right? I mean, he got his rice from my water. That's my rice you're growing there, buddy. Thank you. I'll take it. Second, I, you know, I thought I might have called the rice farmers HOA. Like, who's the HOA on that field and hill? They're like, y'all better get someone to... Write this man a really nasty, threatening letter. Stick it in his mailbox. Or I might have put his picture down on the mailbox at the bottom of the hill. It said, missing my neighbor's integrity. Oh, yes. You're like, oh, no. It's like, Morgan, just listen to your own sermon, right? I mean, like, oh, okay. Any number of things. But this man's friends, because they were Christian people, said this. Try watering both fields. And he did it. And he painstakingly pumped both fields for hours and days. He pumped and watered his own field and his thieving neighbor's field. And finally, his neighbor came over and asked him, why are you doing this? And Watchman Nee's brother looked at him and said, because I forgive you. I forgive you. What does the story show us? It shows us here now the central practice of a community of kindness and compassion. The practice 
of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Paul ends his whole section here on communal living with this. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, right away, of course, you may object. You don't like this. There's a difference, by the way, between not liking this and objecting. We all don't like it, but some of us may object. And if you do, I get why. Because teaching on forgiveness has been abused. It's been used, yes, as a means to control, to manipulate, to oppress. Sure. Therefore, it can leave people feeling like this. Follow me this on this story. Danielle Barron, she, was a, she's an article, she wrote an article for the New York Times. Uh, she wrote an article called this. Great title. Should we forgive the men who assaulted us? Should we forgive the men who assaulted us? Writing, of course, in the Me Too era. And she said this. Insisting, uh, insisting, wait, so so she wrote this. Though she had been abused, sorry, though she had been abused and she couldn't quite bring herself to forgive just yet, she hoped that one day she could. She still held out the possibility of forgiveness. But one person wrote back to her in the comments section where all logic, reason, and emotion go to die. (laughs) Or back to rebuke her desire even to want to forgive. And this person said this, insisting that she forgive plays into the sickness of patriarchal, misogynistic, male supremacist religions that blame women. Forgiveness heals neither the body nor the mind. Let the criminal ask his gods if there be any for forgiveness. Why is there such conflict over just the idea of forgiveness today. Well, apart from the potential abuse of it, I think it's for two reasons. First, it's because number one, we actually don't know what it is. And so let me try to just offer you my take of a definition of forgiveness, biblically speaking. Forgiveness is forgoing the personal payment someone owes you for what they did. Forgoing the personal payment someone owes you for what they did. It looks like not making the man pump the water back into your lawn, but maybe, maybe even watering his. And the reason I, I like this, and I think this is the reason forgiveness looks like this, is because it's almost impossible, almost impossible to let bitterness and resentment grow in your heart towards someone and act on it when you are at the same time blessing, serving, enriching, praying for them. This is, this is it's not easy. Didn't say it was. Paul didn't either. Not for the faint of heart. But the second reason I think we also object to forgiveness is because we think it's at odds with justice. Because while forgiveness is forgoing the fact of what someone owes you, justice is at the same time working, acting uh, on behalf of shalom, peace for all people. It's never loving to allow someone to continue to hurt others. That's not love. We should do both, practice both. But I'll argue this, you'll never be able to go after real, true, full, shalom-oriented justice unless you've forgiven first. Oh, first, forgiveness, yes, and justice should both be things practiced and embodied in communities. And not only those two things, come on, a lot of things should happen in communities. Paul said Christian communities, we saw a few of them, should be places where stinky speech gets put away, where we don't shade the truth. Business people are honest. Like, Christians, you shouldn't call in sick when you're not. That's called lying. Put off falsehood, right? Don't put fake sales on the end of your quarterly numbers just to take them back later because it makes your numbers look better. That's falsehood. Put that off, right? We're not supposed to brawl 
over politics. We are supposed to build one another up. We're not supposed to show ill will toward others. We should be different and we should treat one another different. Oh, but what if you're not? What if you don't get treated right? What you gonna do about it? Take your Bible ball and go home. Hmm? What happens when you're not treated right? Paul says, practice forgiveness. It's the central practice of communities of kindness and compassion. You can actually offer it even when it's been unasked for first. You say that's impossible. I say, no, there's a secret. Here it is. What's the secret for offering forgiveness? I know this story, 2006, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. A man broke into an Amish schoolhouse, took the girls hostage. He shot 10 of them, then killed himself as the police descended on the schoolhouse. Afterwards, the survivors, some of the girls reported that two of the older girls, when they knew what was about to happen, they offered, they asked to be shot first and killed in the place of the others. Now, the Amish don't have television, They don't watch movies. They don't listen to the radio. Where do you suppose they got the idea of sacrificing themselves in the place of another? Afterward, the Amish community took up a financial collection for the widow of the killer. And within hours, they went to the home of the killer and offered forgiveness to the widow and the family, holding the sobbing parents of the uh, the killer who shot their own kids, prayed with them for hours. And the wife of the killer, the widow, felt all this and wrote this letter into the UK Telegraph. She said this, this letter got published. She said, your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Gifts you've given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. Did you hear what she said? She said, your compassion... Your community's compassion is changing the world. She connected forgiveness, compassion, community, world change. By all accounts, come on. I mean, the Amish are fundamentalists, are they not? They are. So why didn't their fundamentalism lead them to oppress and abuse? Because of this. It all matters. What matters most is what your fundamental is. What's your fundamental is? Everybody's got a fundamental. You got one, I got one, we got one. And the reality is this. The fundamental of a world without God, a world without Christ, isn't less moralistic. It's more moralistic, more judgmental, because a world without God and Christ offers no basis for what these Christians in Pennsylvania offered. Without Christ, There's only more violence, more judgment, moralism. But the Amish discovered the secret, the fundamental. Ephesians 4.32, forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And how, come on, did Christ do it? hmm? Did he offer up forgiveness only when others made amends to him first? On the cross, he prayed that God would forgive the ones killing him. The Romans hammering the nails didn't ask. The Jewish leaders condemning him didn't ask. The crowd going along with it all didn't ask. And yet he offered it up. Why is therefore God's love so powerful? It's powerful because he forgives freely at the cost of himself. That's why we love God. You know why I love him? Because he came into my life through Jesus. 
And he offered me forgiveness, though I had rejected and rebelled and ran and showed me his love and forgave me. And if the central act of the Christian faith is a man hanging on a cross, dying for and forgiving his enemies as they do it, how can that not change us? Us, how can we not do the same? We can, because of Christ, bit by bit by bit. We can pump that water into our neighbor's field, our parents' field, spouse's field, child's field, that group's field. We can do this. That's the secret to building up communities of kindness and compassion. Looking at Christ in his pain, offering us forgiveness while we offer our pain to him. Now, last thought here. As I prepared this, I began to think of all the people who needed to hear this today. (laughs) And then I realized that just goes to show how badly I need this as well. And I did in the moment. I confessed out loud the names of the people I needed to forgive. And some I needed to again. He who has been forgiven much loves much. Jesus said, do you know how much you've been forgiven? Yeah. If you do, it's possible to begin to offer the same to others right now, today. Let me take a moment and pray for us. Lord, we come today in Jesus' name, acknowledging our need, crucial need for you. Without you, we can't even begin to live like this. We can't. I'm praying for each of us today. It's only normal and natural. You hear someone like this, some name bubbles up in your heart, some group of people, some kind of your parent, your friend. Maybe you could just take a moment right now in your heart of hearts, even from your lips, and just say, even if you don't believe it yet, even if you don't feel something flood in, I forgive them, him, her. just as God in Christ forgave me. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.